crazy thing about this is that this, this protective net for the, <laughs> for the trampoline. That's so crazy. Wow, look at that. Yeah, it's like, it looks, looks like it's coated in water. But... Jeez, that is pretty crazy. <laughs> That's Pretty a nice for you on a Friday morning. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. We are so happy you are with us. Donna's on assignment in Los Angeles. And the Northeast, as you can see, is bracing for an Arctic blast. Extreme wind chill set to be the lowest in decades. This morning, the area is impacted by the cold temperatures. We'll take you live to Boston. Plus, a suspected Chinese spy balloon the size of three buses has been seen hovering over U.S. airspace, where it was just spotted, and what the Pentagon plans to do now. Plus this. They see me as a powerful voice that needs to be silenced. That is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. She has been removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Democrats accusing Republicans of racism. What Kevin McCarthy is saying ahead. But we do begin this hour with extreme Arctic weather unleashing some of the coldest temperatures the Northeast has seen in decades. Forecasters are warning this could be a once-in-a-generation deep freeze with wind chills plunging to 50 degrees below zero in parts of New England. Take a look at some of these wind chills in the forecast here in New York City, minus 7 degrees in Boston, minus 32. We'll go there live in a moment. That's not a typo. The wind chills could reach 100 degrees below zero, minus 100 on top of Mount Washington in New Hampshire because of hurricane force winds. This all comes after a deadly ice storm swept across the south, leaving at least eight people dead. Athena Jones is live in Boston, where it is, fair to say, insanely cold right now. Well, good morning, Poppy. It's cold. It's a few degrees below freezing, but I would say it's not insanely cold yet. I'm pretty comfortable. I'm not from the north, but it's going to get much, much worse as you guys have been forecasting. Really, all told, we're talking about 15 million people across a wide portion of the northeast, basically everything from northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, a nor uh, New York state, and everything north uh, under uh, wind chill warnings or, uh, or alerts of some sort, because uh, this wind, this temperature is going to steadily drop over the course of the day into tomorrow. As you mentioned, we could see wind chills as low as 21 degrees here in Boston tonight, 27 uh, on Saturday. And so that is why officials are taking all sorts of precautions. Uh, Boston public schools are closed. Uh, so are public schools in, in surrounding areas as well. They're going to be warming centers open for people who uh, may lose power. One uh, uh, North National Weather Service uh, source we speak, spoke to said that it's not just the wind chill. These extremely high winds uh, dropping the temperature to dangerously low levels where you can get frostbite in a matter of minutes. It's also the wind itself. In some places, the gusts could be so strong that they end up knocking out power. So knocking power lines, that could lead to power outages. Very, very uh, uh, dangerous at this temperatures. That's one reason they're going to have warming centers all around uh, Boston to try to get to get to help help make sure people uh, stay safe. Okay. Bobby? Athena Jones, so you and your crew hang in there through it. Caitlin. A remarkable story coming out overnight right now. The Pentagon tracking a massive balloon currently over Montana. Defense officials say they are confident this is a Chinese surveillance balloon. The balloon is described to be the size of about three buses. And while it's unclear what China is looking for in Montana, and officials have not speculated publicly, we should note, Montana is home to one of three American Air Force bases that operate and maintain those intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
Lawmakers are now calling on the Biden administration to respond forcefully, with Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying, quote, China's brazen disregard for U.S. sovereignty is destabilizing, is a destabilizing action that must be addressed, and President Biden cannot be silent. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live from the Pentagon. CNN's international correspondent Mark Stewart is covering the angles from Hong Kong. Thank you both for being here. Orrin, you know, what are we hearing from defense officials this morning as they're tracking this? Well, the Pentagon says they've been tracking this for several days now. They won't give a specific current location of where the balloon is, but we know where it has been. It's been spotted over Billings, Montana, and defense officials here say it has passed over numerous sensitive sites. They won't specify what those sites are in the northern U.S., but as you pointed out, Montana is home to one of the country's ballistic missile silo fields. So perhaps that's the site that the uh, surveillance balloon was trying to gather information on, gather intel against the United States. The key question, of course, what do you do with this balloon now? President Joe Biden asked for military options, asked for should it be shot down. The top officials at the Pentagon, including uh, uh, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, recommended against doing that for now. There was a risk to what's on the ground, both facilities and people. But the, the Pentagon will continue to watch this. NORAD will watch this. And if the risk goes up, they will keep that military option on the table, Caitlin. And Orrin, if they've been tracking this for several days, you know, why are we finding out about it now? Why are they making this information public? So it's worth remembering that uh, the Pentagon has said there have been several of these occasions in the past, though they won't specify where or when. And because it's a balloon that doesn't appear to be moving very quickly, it's possible this has been in the air for quite some time now. But they're publicizing it right before Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to the region, a high-stakes visit with tensions running very high between Beijing and Washington. So this will only add to that tension, but it makes it public what the U.S. is going to talk about uh, China with to see if there's any breakthrough with Blinken or if the tensions, the relations there at this point just keep moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, Blinken's visit makes him the first top diplomat from the U.S. to be there in six years. Mark, what are we hearing from the Chinese government this morning? What are they saying? Are they offering any kind of explanation or even, you know, saying that, yes, this is their spy balloon? Yeah, okay, Lou, we just received response in the last few hours, and I think it can be categorized as both cautious and diplomatic. Right away, I want to go to a statement that we received late today from a foreign ministry spokeswoman, of which she says, quote, China is a responsible country. We act in accordance with international law. We have no intention in violating other countries' airspace. We hope relevant parties would handle the matter in a cool-headed way. And that phrase, cool-headed way, comes, as we have discussed, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken marks his first visit in the very near future to China. Not only will he have to discuss this most current case, but also the buildup of U.S. troops in the Philippines, along with other issues such as trade and, and a lot of the intellectual property issues with, with semiconductor chips. But it will be interesting to see if this dominates the discussion or perhaps it doesn't come up at all. As we know in diplomacy, both nations to an extent have engaged in some kind of surveillance over the years. It's just a state of business. It's the way things operate. It'll be interesting to see how much of a focus this has. Yeah, hard to see how he doesn't bring it up, at least privately. Mark Stewart, Orrin Lieberman, thank you both so much for staying on top of this bizarre story. And ahead, we're going to dive more into this discussion with CNN's John Miller and Jim Shudo. Stay with us. Okay, a defiant Vladimir Putin is promising victory in Ukraine as Russian missiles and rockets rain down on key Ukrainian cities. Ukrainian intelligence says Putin is getting ready to launch what they are deeming to be a, quote, massive offensive 
and that he plans to seize the entire Donbass region in eastern Ukraine by next month. Our Sam Kiley is live on the ground in the southern city of Mykolaiv, and Russia, as Russian strikes there have overnight intensified, Sam, is that right? Yes, indeed. Uh, there was a very intensive uh, bombardment last night. Uh, a number of different uh, residential buildings were hit in Kherson, uh, and at least two people are reported to have been killed in the previous 24 hours. Now, this is situation normal, really, for Kherson, although the level of bombardment has been increasing. There's no expectation necessarily that the Russians are going to launch a, a, a ground strike back across the Dnipro River against the city, but they are taking on its civilian population. And this what a few hours on the ground looks like in that beleaguered city. 12 weeks ago, Ukrainians celebrated the liberation of Kherson from months of Russian occupation. This is the scene today. The Russians continuing to fire with direct fire from tanks across the river, which is just a few hundred meters in that direction. And on top of that, locals are telling us that it's being regularly shelled with grads, the multiple rocket launching systems, completely indiscriminate. Homes have been blown up. Hospitals torn by high explosives in weeks of an ever-intensifying bombardment. Local authorities here talk of scores of artillery attacks from Russian positions just across the Dnipro River every day. Firefighters and emergency workers keep their base locations secret. They're prime targets for Russia's guns. Two people were killed around the city overnight. A missile landed very close to here recently, adding urgency to this food distribution to people who are still here because they're trapped by poverty. Grad rockets flew in during the day. At half past three, right here, our guard was standing there. The guard got hit, they said. And why do you think the Russians are doing this? Revenge, probably, she said. Probably revenge, because they ran away. This underpass is a brief refuge taken by desperate civilians seeking help and food. Most of the houses are destroyed, he said. People are staying without electricity, water and gas, and there's constant shelling. We're on the contact line. We live near the bridge. Anatoly will take what help he can get from local government. A Russian strike against City Hall five days ago means that this plastic sheeting can be put to better use. What are you going to do with that? I'll board up the windows. The window's out. No glass. He'll have to walk home. No one will drive to his neighbourhood. It looks out across the river at the Russians. Now, facing off the Russians, Poppy in the east has been a very, very violent business. And there are deep concerns in Ukraine that with a big troop build-up on the other side of the front line, Russia might open a front for another front, for example, in the south. Sam Kiley, thank you very much for all of that reporting. Also this morning, House Republicans have voted using their new power to remove Minnesota Democrat Ilhan Omar from the high-profile Foreign Affairs Committee. 
The GOP serving up retribution, they say, in response to Democrats and the long-running partisan battle over committee assignments. CNN's Elena Train joins me now. Elena, we know this was expected, but, you know, it actually did take longer. The Republicans believed it would to get there. What was happening on the House floor yesterday? Right. Well, Caitlin, despite threats from three Republicans to oppose the resolution removing Ilan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, all but one voted in favor of it. Uh, Rep. David Joyce voted present. Um, and, you know, if you look at the buildup to this, a lot of people were, were worried about the rules process and the processing for removing a member from the committee. They didn't want this to just be seen as a tit for tat. And they have since secured agreements from McCarthy to have a more bipartisan process moving forward on the Ethics Committee to remove members moving forward. Uh, Congresswoman Ellen Omar said yesterday that she believes Republicans are targeting her because she is black, Muslim, and an immigrant. Let's take a listen. There is this idea that you are a suspect if you are an immigrant, or if you are from certain parts of the world, or a certain skin tone, or a Muslim. Is anyone surprised that I am being targeted? Is anyone surprised that I am somehow deemed unworthy to speak about American foreign policy? Or that they see me as a powerful voice that needs to be silenced? So, Caitlin, you know, many Democrats very angered by this decision and a lot of criticism coming from the left. Uh, Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries has said that he thinks that this was less about accountability and more about political revenge. Yeah, and you saw several Democrats who are Jewish standing up for her, standing alongside her. Elena Treen, thank you so much for that report. Thank you. So... As you just heard, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is off her committee over comments that in some cases have been criticized by both sides of the aisle as being anti-Semitic. We should put out, point out that she apologized in 2019 for comments quickly saying anti-Semitism is real, saying she unequivocally apologized. Yesterday, actually, she just before that vote, she signed onto a resolution condemning anti-Semitism. Contrast that with Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, who had their committee assignments reinstated. Both have ties to the far right. Green has a history of anti-Semitic comments, some of which she's apologized for. Gosar put out an anime-style video showing a character with his own face attacking Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and President Biden. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says he has not apologized to her. Here is what she told our John Berman last night. This was about revenge. This was about petty politics. But also, I think it's also important that, to state that this was not just about Republicans trying to feed a base that they have already primed for years under Donald Trump with racism, misogyny, xenophobia, Islamophobia, but also it represents a stripping of an important perspective on the House Foreign Affairs Committee that Ilhan Omar, as a, as a refugee, as an immigrant, as the only hijabi woman in the United States Congress, presents in uh, and that perspective is critical in terms of American foreign policy. When you look at Swalwell and Schiff, 
um, they're targeting and, and the Republican Party's targeting of all three of them have always been about campaigning and it has always been about the perspectives that they bring. It is about political revenge in the case of all three of them. Uh, political revenge for Adam Schiff for his work on the impeachment of Donald Trump. Political revenge with Eric Swalwell in the incisive, uh, his incisive ability to communicate against the Trump administration and the wrongdoings of the Republican Party. And in the case of Ilhan Omar, I believe that that hers is absolutely especially amplified with racist targeting because this is what fed her base. This is the same representative that uh, Donald Trump held rallies around saying, send her back to her, quote unquote, her country. These individuals that Kevin McCarthy has appointed, chosen to appoint to committee, George Santos claimed that his grandparents were in the Holocaust. That was a lie a disgusting lie, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene regularly trafficking in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, Paul Gosar inciting, these are individuals, Marjorie Taylor Greene included, inciting violence against specific members in the body. He has appointed all three of them to House committees, not just one, but multiple. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was engaging in 9-11 conspiracy theories, Kevin McCarthy appointed her to the Homeland Security Committee. So now, I, I keep thinking about this morning, where does this go from here, right? Some of the representatives, including one we'll have on um, in a few hours, says this is about consistency. But where does this go from here, do you think? Well, I think a lot of the Republicans were concerned because they were against Gosar and Green being removed from their committees, saying basically you can't punish them for what they said. Right. And then they're voting for this measure. That's why you saw such the a lack struggle. Of consistency. Yeah. And what I, you know, I was on the Hill yesterday and what yeah. I heard from Republicans was basically what won them over was they believe McCarthy should essentially strengthen the appeal process for members like Ilhan Omar and others. Nancy Mace had said that that was a key issue for her. Yeah, I mean, part of that was already available to them. They could already appeal it to the Ethics Committee, but Ken Buck and others said that they strengthened it further, and that's why they eventually moved here. But it wasn't as easy as I think some Republicans thought it was going to be. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah. All right, take you to South Carolina now. Questions about Alec Murdoch and why would he kill his own wife and son? What would be his motive? That is what prosecutors are now turning to and putting the spotlight on on Murdoch's finances and the allegations that he stole millions of dollars from his law firm. We heard new testimony about the Snapchat video that his son recorded right before he was murdered. Randy Kay has been following the murder trial for us for, from Walterboro, South Carolina. Randy, what are we, I mean, every day it seems like the developments in court are more stunning than the, the pre previous day. What happened yesterday? Well, this is the uh, this is the Snapchat video that we're talking about, Caitlin. It's the second video from Paul Murdoch's phone that was shown in court. And while it does show this very lighthearted moment between father and son, Prosecutors seem to be using it to lay the groundwork that Alec Murdoch showered and changed clothes after allegedly killing his family. I work for Snap Incorporated. This employee from Snapchat was called on to testify for the state so she could authenticate this video. The video was extracted from Paul Murdoch's phone months after he and his mother Maggie were killed. The username is listed here as Paul9499. You don't see Paul on the video, but you hear him laughing at his father, Alec Murdoch. <laughs> Did you determine reviewing the records whether, <clears throat> excuse me, that account sent out that particular video? Yes, it was sent on 
same day, June 7th, 2021, at 23, or I'm sorry, uh, 7.56 hours Eastern time. 7.56 p.m., the night of the murders. That's less than an hour before prosecutors say Paul Murdoch's phone ceased all activity, which they say was about 8.49 p.m. Remember, Alec Murdoch told investigators he hadn't seen his family since supper time, that he discovered their bodies and called 911 at 10.07 p.m. What's especially significant about this video, besides the timestamp, is what Alec Murdoch is wearing in it. Notice the long pants and the short sleeve blue shirt. Testimony shows when police responded to the 911 call a couple of hours later, Alec was wearing something different, shorts and a white t-shirt. They're foreshadowing their effort to prove that somehow he showered off, washed his clothes, made those clothes disappear and changed clothes. On cross-examination, the defense seemed to try and show that perhaps someone else might have known where Paul Murdoch was, based on his Snapchat. And that person killed Paul and his mother. Is it possible for, um, I mean, I don't know how it works, for some or all of Paul's friends to have access to his location through the app? Yeah, if he, if he made his settings visible, his geolocation visible to his friends, yes. That plays right into what Alec Murdoch told investigators after the killings, that Paul had been receiving threats following a boat crash he was involved in. A young woman died in that crash, and Paul had been charged with driving the boat drunk and causing her death. On the issue of motive, out of the jury's presence, the judge allowed testimony from this state witness. The chief financial officer of Alec Murdoch's former law firm told the court she confronted Alec about hundreds of thousands of dollars in missing funds just hours before his wife and son were killed. The judge hasn't decided if he'll allow testimony about Murdoch's alleged financial schemes. He's accused of defrauding clients of nearly $9 million before he was disbarred. Had the firm received this $792,000? No. Did this matter ever come to your attention again at a later time? Yes. That would have been in September um, after we found some other misappropriations and we had confronted Alec and he had resigned. Prosecutors say Alec killed his wife and son to distract from his alleged financial fraud and prevent it from being exposed. And getting back to that Snapchat video and this idea that Alec Murdoch cleaned himself off, there was an investigator on the stand yesterday and on cross-examination she said that she examined the drains at the Murdoch home for traces of blood or tissue and she found nothing. Caitlin? Wow. Randy Kay, thank you for that update. All right, also this morning, if you thought the price of eggs was bad, take a look at orange juice. Yeah. The cost is skyrocketing. Big questions about what is behind the surge? How expensive could it potentially get? Plus, how many Republicans will end up running against Donald Trump? Would a crowded GOP primary actually be a good thing for the former president? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Breakfast is getting more expensive. You're maybe pouring orange juice right now, and it costs you a lot more, right? First it was eggs, now it's OJ. Fewer oranges means pricier orange juice. Florida's expecting its smallest crop in almost a century, and that means a jug of orange juice can cost 8% more than last year. Vanessa Urkiewicz joins me now. I've definitely noticed it, because it used to only be the organic, special, fancy stuff, and now it's all of it. It's across the board. It's across all sizes. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture has cut their outlook for production for Florida this year, it's going to be cut in half compared 
to the previous growing season. So that is sending prices to, on average, across all sizes, about $4. And you mentioned it, year-over-year jump, 8.2%. That's huge in a growing season from 2021 to 2022. Usually we like to see the jumps around 1% to 3%. 8% is quite a bit. So the question is why. There are a couple weather events that happened in Florida. So two deep freezes, one in January, one in December. And then there was Hurricane Ian, which was so devastating for the state and for citrus farmers. There's also a deadly disease called greening. This actually turns the oranges literally green. You can't grow, you can't sell them rather. You can't turn them into orange juice. And Florida is the biggest producer of oranges for orange juice. So this is really hitting them hard. One agricultural expert said to me, citrus farmers, they just really can't catch a break right now. Yeah, no question. Well, um, how much did that glass that you brought with you cost you? Five well, bucks. Uh, no. This was free. <laughs> However, don't I mean, see it in. But I mean, you know, prices. People want to know when they're going yeah, when up, is when, it they, get back when to they're normal. coming down. So. Inflation has cooled overall, but we've seen grocery store prices still remain quite elevated. Uh, juice year over year is up about 11% in the grocery store. But I, this is so interesting. Uh, juice actually has a futures market. Orange juice has a yes, futures market, which is which is so interesting. I we remember can... Wall Street with Michael Douglas and <laughs> right? I don't remember you them learned, talking about that. This. Sorry that I'm old. The futures are pointing up about 4%. So unfortunately, not seeing a decline yet. And weather plays such a big factor in all of this. So wait and see, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Enjoy it. (laughs) Hang on to that glass. (laughs) A notorious mob boss on the run for 16 years finally arrested after pretending to be a genuine pizza chef. How'd he pull it off? Plus, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is preparing to visit China in the coming days. CNN has spoken to the families of those wrongly detained Americans, urging him to prioritize securing their release during that trip. That's ahead. Italy has captured a most wanted mob boss on the lam for 16 years in France. Police say 63-year-old Edardo Greco was busted working undercover, get this, as a pizza chef on Thursday. He was even featured in a French paper as an authentic Italian pizza maker. That's according to Italian media. Greco was sentenced back in the 90s for the murder of two brothers who are presumed to have been uh, dissolved in acid. Also this morning, the Pentagon is tracking a high-altitude suspected Chinese spy balloon. Yes, you heard that right, that is hovering over the United States. This risks adding further strain to the already tense U.S.-China relations. And it comes just days before Secretary of State Antony Blinken is due to visit Beijing, a trip notable in and of itself because he's the first American top diplomat to visit there in six years. While there, he is expected to address major issues, including Russia's war in Ukraine, trade, But the families of wrongfully detained Americans are also urging him to make the release of their loved ones a priority. CNN's Kylie Atwood has been covering this. She joins us now. Kylie, uh, what is the State Department saying? Do they expect Blinken to bring up these wrongfully detained Americans while he's sitting down face to face with these Chinese officials? Well, listen, they're not getting ahead of the meeting, but what they say is that he raises these issues in every single country where detained Americans are a problem. And of these three wrongfully detained Americans in China, one of them is received a lifetime in prison sentence, another one a death sentence. And here's a story of Kai Lee, who raised his family in Long Island, New York. 
American citizen Kylie took a trip to China six and a half years ago that unexpectedly resulted in no return. Never would we have imagined in our wildest dreams that he'd be whisked away by agents of China's Ministry of State Security on these charges of espionage. Kylie's son, Harrison, says he's now in Qingpu prison, facing a 10-year prison sentence for espionage, charges he vehemently denies. The only way they communicated for three years was through closely monitored letters. More recently, Kylie is allowed seven-minute phone calls to his family or U.S. officials twice monthly. With these COVID restrictions, uh, the authorities simply just lock them in their cells 24-7. Um, they don't even have access to, to bathing facilities. What they do is they just take a, a big pot of lukewarm water and just deliver it um, to the cell uh, remotely for, for those kinds of needs. Kylie is one of three Americans the State Department has declared to be wrongfully detained by China, along with David Lin and Mark Sweden. Their families are closely watching as Secretary of State Tony Blinken visits Beijing in the coming weeks. I just like to tell Secretary Blinken, you know, use every possible tool that you, the administration has available to get my dad home. Diane Foley, whose son was detained and beheaded by ISIS in 2014, created a foundation to support the families of Americans wrongfully detained all over the world. She says adversaries use the lives of American citizens as weapons. They seek to interfere with our foreign policy and our national security, and that is obvious. They use it like a tactic of a silent warfare. Asked if Blinken will raise the issue, State Department spokesperson Ned Price said the Secretary Secretary has no higher priority than the safety of Americans abroad. Every time uh, the secretary uh, has a significant uh, bilateral engagement uh, with uh, a country where uh, this is, in fact, a concern of ours, uh, it is something uh, that is raised. Uh, we raise these cases on an individual basis. Now, obviously, it requires a ton of negotiation to get these Americans who are wrongfully detained back to the United States. And as far as we can tell, there are no active negotiations with China underway. But the State Department says just because you don't see something on the surface doesn't mean it's not happening. Caitlin. Yeah. And certainly their families want that to happen, even behind the scenes or in public. Kelly, I would thank you. Also, former President Trump is ramping up his 2024 campaign, not with events, but with attacks, attacking anyone who might step in the ring with him. Why having as many opponents as possible could be a good thing for him. We'll tell you that next. Also, the FBI is expected to search former Vice President Mike Pence's home and office in Indiana, looking for any potentially more classified documents. That story ahead. Former President Trump is in attack mode against his potential 2024 rivals, even claiming that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis cried as he sought Trump's endorsement. Ron DeSantis got elected because of me. You remember he had nothing. He was dead. He was leaving the race. He came over and he begged me, begged me for an endorsement. He was getting ready to drop out. And there were tears coming down from his eyes. He said, if you endorse me, I'll win. As for Trump's former U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, Trump says she is, quote, overly ambitious as she is now reported to officially planning being, be planning on jumping into the race next week. A big question, though, for many people is how many other Republicans are going to throw their hats in the ring and what does it mean for Trump's chances? 
Joining us now to talk about this is CNN political commentator and anchor Michael Smirkanish. Uh, that is a good question. And you know, this is a real concern that I've heard from people who don't want Trump to be the nominee, but they think it's going to be a, a 2016 repeat. A lot of Republicans and it helps Trump in the end. What do you think? I will never forget, Caitlin, being at the Reagan Library for what was the first Republican debate of the 2016 cycle. There were so many candidates, the number was 15 or 16, that they had to be split into two. There was like a JV debate before the varsity debate. And, you know, Donald Trump was then able to pull 25, 30 percent of those primary caucus states, which was enough to cruise to victory. If the polls are to be believed, He's somewhere in the upper 40s or nearly 50 percent right now. So the more the merrier is the bottom line. I think he wants Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo and a whole host of others to get in. He holds that base. He secures the nomination unless, of course, he's indicted along the way. Yeah, of course, the investigation is still a big question. OK, but can you square the circle for me? Because listen to what Trump said yesterday, talking about Mike Pompeo, who, of course, was his secretary of state in his potential run. So, you know, I've helped all those people. I took Mike out of nothing. And, you know, I'm surprised because Mike said, I believe the same thing. I believe he always said he'd never run against the president. And, you know, time goes by and then they want to run because they're ambitious people. But, you know, they're polling very poorly. He has this this mentality. And I've heard this privately. He doesn't think anyone should challenge him for the nomination. But to your point there, it actually would kind of help him the more people who get in and run against him. I don't think that he can resist taking a shot at anybody who would step forward. I mean, he has said similar things about Nikki Haley, and yet she says that she told Trump that she was going to get into the race, and he essentially said, well, follow your heart. So I, I think he wants to wound you, you know, before you get out of the gate. But at the same time, he'd rather you be in than not be in at all. So uh, good morning, Michael. How do you then square the circle on Republicans like Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, who's, you know, considering a run himself, um, and Larry Hogan, who said he won't support Donald Trump, but their both their position is, well, he's not going to be the nominee anyways. Let, let's listen to what Sununu said yesterday. Do you commit to supporting the GOP nominee, whoever it is? Yes. Even if it's Donald Trump? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump, but I'm going to support the Republican nominee, to be sure. Because, I mean, I think that you did at a dinner call Donald Trump effing crazy yeah that was funny it was a roast it was a funny joke so michael <laughs> uh, i'm laughing i guess it was a funny i it was listen they, they don't want to alienate that base i mean larry hogan had a similar episode just yesterday on a radio program where will you support the nominee yeah i'll support the nominee it's same thing and if it's trump remember that michael you had to correct yeah. it yesterday Exactly. So so they, they don't want to alienate that hard core of the party. And this is why it's so hard threading the needle of being the opposition to Donald Trump, but not alienating the very hardcore Trump people who are within the GOP. Uh, yeah. So what do you think happens here, Michael? Do we see I remember so well, was that the debate where the plane was behind them and they had absolutely you read, yeah. it was so crowded, two different stages, two different times. Do you think that's what we're heading into again? 
No, I don't think so. I, I don't think we're headed for 15, 16. I, I don't see senators coming forward. I, I see a lot of those you might anticipate getting in who are going to think twice about it this time. Uh, what remains to be seen, though, is the total number of the field and whether Donald Trump can maintain the support that he has. Can I remind you that at this stage in the last cycle where he was successful, meaning February of 2015, he wasn't showing up in the polls, and, and most of, I'll say us, never took seriously that he would run. I argue he's in a stronger position today than he was in that cycle. Former president and half of Republicans who are standing with him. You heard it here first from Michael Smirconish. Thank you, Michael. Everyone, you can catch Michael's show 9 a.m. Eastern tomorrow right here on CNN. Well, coming up for us on CNN this morning, this. Hello, I'm Sarah McLaughlin. For just dollars a day, you can help helpless animals find shelter. Wrong shelter, Sarah. <laughs> it is that time again. Bringing on the Super Bowl ads, but how much will they cost this year? Harry Anton with this morning's number. I'm always fascinated by how much they cost. Bye. Time is money, as they say. So how much money will seconds of airtime cost advertisers at Super Bowl 57? CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton is here with the morning number. How many gazillions? Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay, this morning's number is the cost of a 30-second ad is $7 million. $7 million is this morning's number in 2023. My goodness. I don't know where those companies get that money. I guess it's because we give it to them. But take a look here. I think this gives you an understanding of how much the cost of a Super Bowl ad has gone up over the years. If you go back to the first Super Bowl, accounting for inflation, it was just $383,000 for a 30-second ad. By 1980, it jumped to 847000 The beginning of this century, $3.5 million, but now it's double that at $7 million per ad. We've even seen a jump from 2020. I guess my question to you, Poppy, is what's your favorite part of watching the Super Bowl? Because 24% of Americans say the commercials. I'm with this 58% who say the football game, but what do you think? Obviously the football game. Hold on, Carolyn. What did you say? How much a second? 233,000 a second. Uh, uh, I have a really, we got really smart producer. We got really, there. Carolyn's a very smart producer. <laughs> I, I don't know who it's these. It's the football for me. I'm not as obsessed with the commercials, but I know a lot of people are. I don't know who the 2% who say the pregame shows are the favorite part of watching the Super Bowl, but I'm part of the 58%. But I will say this. Broadcasters are getting a lot for their dough because take a look at the top broadcast of 2022 mm -hmm. on any one network. Look how many people tuned into the Super Bowl. Wow. 99.2 million. That was double the next highest, which is the NFC Championship at 50.2 million. And the top non-sports event was just 22 million. So that's a lot of money, but and those who advertise. Gets who's airing the Super Bowl this year? Uh, Fox is airing the Super okay. Bowl. Okay, Harry, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Millions of Americans in the Northeast bundling up this morning amid the coldest wind chills in decades. How cold is it going to get? That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. What we're likely to uh, in, uh, encounter uh, over the next 36 to 48 hours is going to be really unprecedented. This is going to be a cold weather crisis from Seabrook to Colebrook. 
Okay, you know when you're hearing that from New Hampshire's governor? It's yeah, going to be really it's cold. It's going to be really cold. They don't play around <laughs> with the weather. Good morning, everybody. Don is on assignment in Los Angeles this morning, and we are reporting on a dangerous Arctic blast that is descending upon the Northeast, bringing extreme cold, the likes of which we have not seen in decades. We have reporters live on the ground across the region. We're going to bring you the latest forecast on where the wind chills could plunge to 50 below zero. Also, a suspected Chinese spy balloon is hovering over the United States this morning. What is it doing here and why the Pentagon is not shooting it down? Plus this. Consistency. There is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack, except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. Democrats accusing House Republicans of racism for kicking Congresswoman Ilhan Omar off of a key committee. But we begin this morning with the extreme Arctic blast. The Northeast could see some of the coldest weather in decades. Forecasters are warning it could be epic and not in a good way. Once in a generation, potentially with wind chills plunging to 50 degrees below zero in some parts of New England. Look at some of these wind chills in the forecast. Here in New York City, minus seven degrees in Boston, it gets worse, minus 32 degrees. We're going to go there live in a moment. That's not a typo, though. The wind chill could reach minus 100 degrees on top of Mount Washington in New Hampshire because of those hurricane force winds. The Arctic blast in the northeast comes after a deadly ice storm has wreaked havoc across the south, leaving at least eight people dead. We're going to check in on the latest forecast in a moment. But first, we have our CNN affiliate reporter, Melissa Cooney, live on the ground in Burlington, Vermont. Melissa, I know it's already close to zero degrees where you are. You know, how are officials in the area bracing for this? How bad are we expecting it to get? Good morning, Caitlin. Well, Vermonters are really no stranger to the cold, but this wind chill is really the kicker here. Right now, as you said, we're teetering on zero to one degree, and over 200 schools have already been closed here in Vermont, and multiple ski resorts are shutting down too, which is unique because, of course, they love the cold. A few ski resorts like Stowe are staying open with some lifts in and some not, but right now, this is severe with the wind chill. We're seeing negative 17 degree wind chill right now. And temperatures here in Vermont have dropped 30 degrees since midnight. Now, I'm going to show you something. I've been freezing a pair of jeans all morning. And as you can see, this is rock solid. This pretty much only took about 15 minutes to freeze. That's really how cold it is here in Vermont. And at the Waterfront Center, we actually saw some folks swimming just about two minutes ago, which is interesting because we have a polar plunge here, annual event that too has been canceled due to the severe weather. For now, we also know that this has been a warmer January. It's pretty unique because the winter has been the fourth warmest January on record until currently. Right now, we are seeing the negative temperatures for the first time all winter, which is actually quite unique. And even more so, we are going to get even warmer next week. We're going to be in the 30s and the 40s. So this is just a temporary cold snap, but you're right, folks in the area are bracing for the cold. Some we spoke to say they are not going to leave their house and others, you know, Vermonters like to be in the wilderness. Yes, they do. what we do. So for now, we are live in Burlington. <laughs> Melissa Cooney. Not when your jeans are frozen like that. <laughs> They're tough in Vermont. Melissa, thank you very much. And it's beautiful, I have to say, behind you. <laughs> Let's go to our meteorologist, Chad Myers. Good morning, Chad. So this is like Good. really extreme. It really is. I mean, you talk about the numbers, minus 50, minus 60, Mount Washington, minus 100. At 50 degrees below zero, that's 150 degrees almost, colder than your skin. And that's how quickly your skin is going to feel this cold. 
Pets feel it, cars don't, homes don't, but it's the wind that will blow through every single crack in your home that will try to cool the inside from the out. Winds are going to be 50 miles per hour. On top of Mount Washington right now, which is in New Hampshire, it's way up there, it's the highest peak in the East Coast. 83 miles per hour right now, and that number could actually go up later on today. Tomorrow morning will be the coldest part of this. This is a quick hitting storm. It does leave by Sunday. But look at the wind chill forecast here. For now, moving you ahead into the 20s and 30s degrees below zero. So Saratoga to the spa all the way up to Vermont and Burlington. Those are the areas that have said, hey, don't even travel. Do not go out. These are dangerous numbers. Yes, they look silly at 34 degrees below zero. But you don't think about how much colder than that is than freezing at freezing at 32. You're 66 degrees below freezing. Those are real numbers in Montreal and Quebec City and, and on up toward Guelph. You're already feeling it right now. That's our neighbors to the north on up into Canada, Ontario, Quebec. They're feeling it at this point. New York City, you go from 8 to 56 in just the next few days. Buffalo, you're going to get cold, but not as cold as New England. Temperatures are going to be warming back up. A quick hitter, but boy, you just don't want to be outside in this, and the pets can't be out for long either. Yeah. That's yeah. Really good to know. Keep the doggies inside. <laughs> Chad, yeah. thank you very much. All right, also this morning, the Pentagon is tracking a suspected Chinese spy balloon that is over the northern United States. Yes, you heard that right. It is believed to be roughly the size of three buses. It's floating well above commercial airplanes, but... Three flights were delayed in Montana on Wednesday because of the balloon's presence. It's unclear what China is looking for in Montana. Officials are not speculating publicly on that. But we should note, as you know, Montana is home to one of three American Air Force bases that operates and maintains intercontinental ballistic missiles. Two days ago, the Pentagon was so concerned about this, they sent F-22 fighter jets to track the balloon. They decided against shooting it down per a senior defense official because of the safety risk that it posed to people and buildings on the ground. China has responded overnight. China is a responsible country and always abides strictly by international law. We have no intention of violating the territory or airspace of any sovereign country. We hope that both sides will handle it with mutual calm and prudence. Staff for the Gang of Eight, the lawmakers who are briefed on classified intelligence matters, have been briefed. This comes after Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeted, quote, China's brazen disregard for U.S. sovereignty is a destabilizing action that must be addressed, and President Biden cannot be silent. Joining us now is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, we should note Biden has been briefed on this. He's the one who made the ultimate decision not to shoot it down, the White House said yesterday. Uh, but what are the main questions you have about this? Well, first of all, what's it doing here? Uh, we've seen this before, and we know these are collection platforms. You know, they fly at 65,000 feet. This is far above where commercial air traffic would be flying, but just below space. So they're in the stratosphere. But that kind of height gives them really a wide view of territory that they're flying over. There's a payload on there, a vehicle that contains electronics, uh, photographic, video. Uh, there may even be communications gear that can intercept certain audio. So, you know, the question you raise, Caitlin, is well, what are they looking for? They're flying over key military institution installations. But I think the, the thing is you follow the path. Um, you see where it goes, and you'll have a good, a good idea of what they're looking for, depending on, you know, where it ends up. It came in over the Aleutian Islands, crossed over mm -hmm. Canada. 
and went straight over Montana. And they're still following it. We were just talking about the fact that uh, Republican Senator Roger Wicker, who, of course, is a ranking member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, is really worried, A, that the public and Congress wasn't briefed sooner on this. Um, and, and he believes, at least the data, that they, the information they have now, that, that the DOD, in his words, failed to act with urgency. Do you think there is merit to that? I think when you're making intelligence decisions about a Chinese surveillance balloon over the United States, you might not want to advertise it to Congress uh, or the world right away. Um, if you're going to shoot it down over some remote area and there's a chance that it's not going to hurt anybody or crash in anything, and you can collect that surveillance equipment and see what's inside it. So there were a lot of reasons not to run out shouting this at the beginning. What about shooting it down, though? Uh, granted, they're concerned about people on the ground, but if they could have done it in a safe way. So that's a safety decision. Um, the stuff it's carrying weighs a lot and yeah. comes in hardware. Um, and I don't know, I just picture Montana as a place where you could shoot a lot of things down and not hit anything. But, you know, they also had to do a ground stop at Billings Airport while they scrambled yeah, jets sure. to, to look. So it's over some populated areas. I think the real question we got to struggle with here is, this is a big, fat, conspicuous thing in the intelligence world. When you fly a giant balloon the size of three buses over the continental United States, it's provocative. So why? You've got the Secretary of Defense, who's in, in the Philippines, saying we're going to beef up our military presence here in yeah. case we need to respond to Taiwan. You have uh, the Secretary of State heading to China to meet with leaders there about mm -hmm. detained Americans uh, chemicals to make fentanyl being shipped from China to Mexican cartels. So tensions are very high. This may be as simple as the Chinese saying, we have a big spy balloon and we're flying it over your country and we're looking at things that might be able to shoot at us and we want you to know it. But don't forget, just two days ago, we were talking about that memo that came out from one yes. of the generals who was saying we, in his gut, he feels like we could be at war with China in just two years. There was a lot of pushback on that. But I will say, I talked to a source last night. They said they've taken the mitigation measures. They don't expect the Chinese spy balloon to be able to get anything significant. But this is a violation of international law because they're in the U.S. airspace. So Big questions, of course, going forward yeah. about this. John Miller, thank you for your perspective on it. Right. The former Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, is actually going to join us next hour. We have a lot of questions for him on this matter as well. That's right. And this morning, former Vice President Mike Pence is consenting to an FBI search of his home and his office in Indiana to see if there are potentially any more classified documents there. This comes, of course, after Pence handed over a small number of government papers, classified documents last month, that a source says were lower-level classification. Paula rejoins us now. Good morning, Paula. Um, do you know when this is going to happen? And is the FBI expecting to find anything classified? Well, Poppy, we expect this to happen sometime soon, though it's unclear exactly when. And the Pence team says they're confident. They've done their own extensive searches, and they don't believe that there's going to be any additional classified material. But they're trying to be as cooperative as they can because they are keen to avoid the appointment of another special counsel. Right now, the Justice Department, they are reviewing this case. That's the same first step they took with the Biden case. But as we've reported, there is tension between the Justice Department and the Biden team. There were decisions made in the course of that review that resulted in the appointment of a special counsel, in addition to the fact that he's, of course, the president of the United States. So here, there's no decision so far on whether a special counsel will be appointed, but the Pence team is trying to cooperate to the greatest extent possible. It feels like every day, every other day now, there is a search, right? We just saw the yeah. Rehoboth Beach House of President Biden's search. They didn't come up with anything. Do you think this is the beginning of a whole lot more on the horizon for more sort of former presidents and vice presidents? 
Yeah, I, I do. Especially, let's just let's just take Trump, Biden, and Pence. We know from our reporting that there will absolutely be additional developments in these cases. Not necessarily additional searches, but with Biden, for example, the special counsel, he just started a few days ago. It's expected that he'll use a grand jury, likely conduct additional interviews. He could potentially do additional searches. We see and we report on additional witnesses going before the grand jury in the Trump case. And here with the Pence matter, we know they're conducting a review. They had this decision on a special counsel and we're standing by waiting for a search. So Poppy, you, Caitlin, Don and I will be talking a lot each morning about the latest developments. As if you didn't have enough on your plate. <laughs> Paula Reed, thank you. Caitlin. A lot on their plate. Also over on Capitol Hill, House Republicans have just ousted Minnesota Democrat Ilhan Omar from the powerful and influential Foreign Affairs Committee. This is in a 218 to 211 party line vote that happened yesterday, citing anti-Semitic remarks that she has made and clarified in the past. Omar, as you know, is a black woman and a Muslim. She says she believes she was targeted because of her race and her religion. Seen as Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. Lauren, I mean, this we knew this was coming. It had kind of been building for several days, took longer than Republicans thought. But it got incredibly tense on the House floor yesterday over this matter. Absolutely, Caitlin. And I do think it's important to point out it was a hard fought battle for Republican leaders who struggled initially to get the votes to pass this resolution to oust Ilhan Omar from her committee assignment on foreign affairs. But they did eventually succeed. Republicans and Democrats united on each of their sides in this matter. My leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. Representative Ilhan Omar speaking out before the House passed a resolution along party lines removing her from the Foreign Affairs Committee. The resolution is adopted. Omar is one of the first elected Muslim members of Congress and was a refugee from Somalia. Is anyone surprised that I am being targeted? In 2019, Omar received widespread condemnation from both parties after suggesting Republican support of Israel is fueled by donations from the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, a pro-Israel group. She has brought dishonor to the House of Representatives. This vote to remove Omar was long promised by the newly elected House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We're not removing her from other committees, but I think in moving forward, every single member of Congress has a responsibility to how they carry themselves. Democrats are now crying foul, accusing Republicans of targeting Omar in retaliation for when the Democratic-controlled House voted to remove Republicans Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gozar from their committee assignments in response to their violent rhetoric and social media posts. Both Greene and Gozar have received key committee assignments since Republicans took back control of the House. In this type of poisonous, toxic, double standard, it's going to complicate the relationship moving forward between House Democrats and House Republicans. The House Minority Leader is now vowing to place Omar on the Budget Committee. The resolution to block Omar has left even some Republicans who voted for it wary. If we start, we go down this road and we start kicking people off for X, Y, or Z, where does it stop? McCarthy also removed Democratic Representatives Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee last week.
In the case of, of all three of these expulsions, there is either political revenge or there is the absolute agenda um, of, of racist, misogynist and xenophobic targeting. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defending Omar and calling out Republicans for not voting to expel Gosar from his committee assignments after he posted an anime video appearing to depict him killing the New York Congresswoman. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. And tensions up here, Caitlin, are really escalating. You had the first oversight hearings this week, and there's going to be more investigations into the Biden administration, all as lawmakers are going to have to work together at some point to increase the country's debt ceiling. Caitlin? Yeah. Another deadline for them. Lauren Fox, thank you. All right, so what happens, it was Lauren referencing there, if the government does default on its trillions of dollars of debt, how does it impact you? We have the actor and economic commentator Ben McKenzie here to break it all down for you. Also ahead, we'll speak with a veteran who says Congressman George Santos scammed him out of thousands of dollars. His reaction to the FBI now investigating those claims. No way. Look who's back. You know, you're a little far from eight mile. Look, don't. What are you, like, spokesperson for Geeks of America or something? <laughs> you know what I like about rich kids? <laughs> Nothing. Well, that was one of my favorite. That was appointment television Monday nights, I think, when I was in college. <laughs> the OC's Ryan Atwood never shying away from a fight, and it seems neither does the actor who plays him. Ben McKenzie. He has become an outspoken economic commentator, taking his concerns with cryptocurrency all the way to Capitol Hill last December. And now he's got a new concern, the debt ceiling. The government reached its $31.4 trillion debt limit last month and has to actually do something or we're going to default. They have to raise or suspend the limit. Failing to do so could lead to an unprecedented and potentially catastrophic economic calamity and default joining us now. To discuss all of this is the author of Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, Ben McKenzie. Good morning. Good morning. How great, are you? Great so to, glad have to have you in person. Uh, it's great to be here. So Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, says in her letter to McCarthy a few weeks ago, the last sentence was essentially, do your job. <laughs> because the, the consequences of not <laughs> yeah. raising the debt ceiling, in her words, are devastating and catastrophic. What does it mean for Main Street? Well, think of the debt ceiling as sort of like the nation's credit card bill, right? We've already spent the money. We've already bought the things. Now we have to pay for them. And if you don't pay for them, as anyone out there who hasn't, you know, who's bounced on their credit card bill knows, your interest rates go crazy. And so it's basically that for all of us. Imagine 350 million people defaulting on their credit card bill at the same time. It would be catastrophic. So interest rates would go crazy. Um, this is somewhat of a silly exercise and, an ex and a... Uh, of our own making. I mean, we created the debt ceiling. Uh, we're one of only two countries in the world that even have this sort of bizarre. What's the other one? Do you know it? Denmark. Ah, oh, okay. Interestingly enough, yeah. So we could just get rid of all this thing, uh, this, this whole thing, um, which I think would be prudent. But right now, the Republicans are using it for leverage uh, with the Biden White House, trying to exact concessions of an undetermined nature. It's not even sure exactly what the Republicans want. Yeah, so. Denmark doesn't have this Republican House majority that just went 15 rounds to <laughs> exactly. elect a House Speaker. And I think, you know, this is a real concern even for Republicans in Washington. I was there yesterday talking to them about this. 
Because, you know, it happened in 2011. They were basically on the brink. But I think the concern is this time is they don't know exactly what it is that Republicans want. Republicans don't even know fully exactly where they are willing to make these cuts. It's like negotiating with a, you know, with a kidnapper or a hostage taker, and they don't even have demands. You're not even sure exactly what you're supposed to give them. Um, I thought Biden's move was prudent to just say, okay, what do you want? Mm-hmm. Uh, to which apparently the answer is, um, ah, we'll get, get back to let you let on get that. Back to you. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay, so the argument now, you think, it sounds like you think it's a good idea to get rid of the, the debt ceiling. It's a good idea. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that, you know, at some point we need to recognize that the the consequences of defaulting would be so catastrophic that, um, you know, it's unfortunately maybe a lesson we only learn after the fact. I, I don't think it's going to happen this time. I think the probability is low. But the low probability of such a massive, you know, uh, uh, event is is still to be taken seriously. Do Republicans have a point, though, when they say that spending is out of control? I mean, I, I think there's been rightfully pointed out that it's a bit hypocritical given how many times they raised the debt ceiling with no strings attached. When Trump was in office, a Republican president where they could have had more sway, arguably. But do they have a point about what spending looks like in Washington? I, I think, yes. I think the, the blame there falls on both parties, though, of course. I mean, if you look at the numbers, the, the, uh, the debt just goes up and up and up, no matter who's in office. And as you said, in 2018, they passed the debt ceiling no problem, even though it was Republican. And the Trump tax cuts added and significantly. Exactly. exactly. So, you know, this is not a, there's not a single uh, easy answer to this. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, 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 think it's a, I think it's a major problem. Can I just follow up on, so your position is probably better to, to not have Congress control the debt ceiling. Yeah. And that's the position that Treasury Secretary Yellen is taking now. Right. But when Joe Biden was asked about it, the president back in October, he said it would be, I believe the word is irresponsible to do that because it is somewhat of a check on or accountability for what we're going to spend. Though it doesn't check, it just gets raised. Yeah, I mean, you know, Congress has to actually pass this budget, whatever the president proposes. So this is supposed to be a give and take between the different branches of government. I think we're seeing that breakdown, right? We're seeing how in one branch of government has gotten, you know, fairly extreme, I would argue, in terms of the uh, Republican House caucus, um, it creates this imbalance that's awfully hard to, to adjudicate. Yeah. And the fact that I looked it up the other day when I was interviewing someone, they've raised it, I think, 80 times yeah. since like the 1960s right. or 70s. Sure. A yeah. hundred times since World War II. Yeah. Well, we'll see if they do so again and what that looks like. But Mackenzie, you, you seriously have such great perspective on this, so we really enjoy having oh, you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank, so thank you. you. Thanks for joining can we us. we get another OC? like a? Yeah, can you guys play that clip <laughs> like every time, hill. please? No, I mean, like, the hills came back, <laughs> oh, right? oh, another OC? Yeah. Oh, I'll work on that. Okay, we'll thanks, work Basil. on some economics <laughs> in there. Some breaking news there. Yeah. Um, all right, next we're going to get reaction to the FBI. They are now investigating George Santos from the man who says that congressman, the congressman scammed him out of thousands of dollars the Navy veteran Rich Ostop and Michael Bowl are going to join us. That's live next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. <clears throat> Congressman George Santos is under investigation by the FBI for allegedly stealing $3,000 from a dying dog's GoFundMe. The dog's owner, a Navy veteran, says that the FBI has interviewed him this week about the incident and that he is elated that they are investigating. Santos said yesterday he's not worried as he dodged questions, though, about the federal investigation. Are you concerned about the FBI investigation? I am not. Have you spoken to the FBI? Mr. Santos. 
you're facing a federal investigation here. This is very serious. Can you explain to your voters and your constituents what happened with this, with this veteran, the, the conversations that you had with him? Mr. Santos. Santos not answering questions there, but the dog's owner did speak to Don last month about the incident and what happened. This guy, he doesn't deserve to be where he's at. He doesn't deserve a government pension. But when I saw him on the news uh, as Anthony DeVolder, and I put two and two together, it ripped the scab off and it felt, it felt like my dog died yesterday. It hurt me that much all over again. I, I don't want you to ever hurt anybody like you hurt me again, George. Any, and nobody else should ever have to go through that. I almost killed myself when that dog died. That's why I'm here. I don't want him to be able to do this again. And Rich Ostov joins us now, along with Michael Bull, who is the founder of the New Jersey Veterans Network, who tried to intervene and help get the money there. Thank you both for joining us back again. That was such a powerful interview that you had with Don. And, you know, so much has happened since then, including the FBI reaching out to you. What were their questions for you? I can't really get into the exact details about the questions that they asked. I did, however, provide them every piece of evidence that they needed. Um, I don't have anything to hide from them, um, and I want them to pursue this. Uh, he didn't just break the law. He broke my heart when he did this. Uh, I don't usually like to go after people and have them get in trouble or anything like that. Uh, but you break the law and you break my heart and you put me through something like this where I thought that I was going to have my dog taken care of. And then I just had to sit there and watch her die and I couldn't do anything about it. And from being there, are you surprised, you know, from being in that moment when, when she did pass away, are you surprised that it came from there to now the FBI is actually looking into this? Are yes. you glad? I had contacted my local law enforcement when it first happened, and they didn't have a clue who he was, where he was at or anything. So now the big guys, the feds finally picked it up, and I know that it's still prosecutable at this point. I was so relieved. I yeah. mean... And just speaking to the, the FBI, the little bit that I did was cathartic. I mean, just to get my emotions out there and to know that this is finally going somewhere. And so did they want text messages, phone calls? What kind of things were they Text messages. For? They wanted screenshots of anything that I had from uh, the GoFundMe campaign um, and off of my uh, Facebook. Yeah. The former de deputy director of the FBI said that he believes that given, you know, it's $3,000, that's not typically something that I would look into, but he believes it, it means that there's a broader scope of activity that Santos may have been involved in. Is that your suspicion as I, well? I'd put money on it that I'm not the only one he's done this to. It was so well lubricated and, and smooth the way he, he did everything and the, and the spiel that he had. It came out so smooth and, and readily. It, it, it didn't come. It was rehearsed. Um, and as far as the $3,000 is concerned, too, I'm not really looking to get that back from him. Um, I don't really think even if he had a judgment against him to pay it, I don't think I'd ever even see it anyway. Um, George Santos screwed me over. He really stomped me into the ground. But I've been getting a lot of feedback, positive feedback from people, and America's making it right. Michael, I want you to listen to something George Santos said yesterday in an interview. He was asked about, you know, not just this incident, but all, all of the broader lies that have been uncovered since he ran for office. And I know that a lot of people want to create this narrative that I, I faked my way to Congress, which is absolutely categorically false. Um, I've worked hard. I've built ground up a career. Um, through experience and through knowledge and through self-education. Uh, and, you know, I think it's amazing that I have to sit here and be spoken down to on a regular basis, yet again, by the media. 
What do you make of those comments? I'm amazed that he's actually in the position that he got into. I don't understand how he wasn't vetted out properly. I mean, things do happen. I understand that. It's crazy that this person is at the position he is right now, and he has the possibilities of passing legislation. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked, and uh, once I found out who he was, it's hurtful to know that this is the person who's representing our country. And he, he's still a lawmaker. He did step down from those committees, but he's still in Congress. You know, what do you make of him saying that he's worked hard, he built up this career, and he's talking about being spoken down to by the media? He should have had a career as a stand-up comic. Um, he, needs to, he needs to get out of the spotlight. Step down and get out right now. He's just being a distraction. Everything that he's doing, everything that he's done, it's a circus. It's a media circus behind him, and it's making our government look bad. <laughs> it really is. He needs to go, and that's probably the way he can say he's sorry better than any other way. What does it say to you that he's not really answering questions? about any of these allegations. He's heartless and he has no moral compass and uh, no shame, no remorse. He's like a supervillain. Does he owe you a public apology, you think? I believe so. I believe so, or at least acknowledgement that he remembers me and he remembers that this happened. Rich Michael, I know this is a painful thing for you to talk about and to bring up over and over again, but... I know you say you feel validated that the FBI is looking into this. So I'm really glad that you both joined us this morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great conversation. From Wisconsin to Florida, schools across the country are being forced to cancel classes because of a teacher shortage. What is causing this? We'll talk about it. And it is national, as you can see, (laughs) me and Caitlin, Wear Red Day, which brings awareness to heart disease in women. Dr. Tara Narula, Star Jones, they're both here to talk about it. That's how big this chicken sandwich is. This chicken sandwich is so big, CNN put the chicken full screen and put the hurricane down in the corner. That's right. Put the hurricane out the way. <laughs> it was very funny. That is comedian Roy Wood Jr., well known for his daily show appearances. He will be hosting this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner, where President Biden and high-profile members of the media get roasted. Wood has a degree in broadcast journalism and says it's an honor to be asked. He also said this, it will be a great night that will go down in the history books or not, depending on which state you live in. (laughs) The White House Correspondents' Dinner is April 29th. It's going to be so great. I'm really glad they picked him. Uh, It's tough tough to pick the comedian. It's a lot of pressure for the White House Correspondents' Association. You always go. Yes. And uh, you were also elected the head of the White House first month, and then you came to be with us. But I've never been because I'm always here often anchoring the coverage of it. It's really fun. I mean, it's like kind of one of those things that you can kind of watch it on person or on TV, and it's just as good. Yeah, you should totally We'll go this year. We'll go. Okay, (laughs) this morning, a nationwide teacher shortage, leaving thousands of students without educators in grades K through 12. This shortage is so critical, some schools have been forced to cancel class. Renee Marsh is with us. Renee, I'm so glad you did this reporting. Why is this happening? Yeah, you know, to combat this problem, what we're seeing is that administrators are stepping into the classrooms to teach. Schools are moving to four-day school weeks. But the most extreme case that we found was in Wisconsin, where a charter high school was actually forced to shut down completely due to a lack of teachers. (laughs) It's Lala Bivens' first day at a new school. Hi. How are you? First hey. day. 
10th graders started fall classes at One City Preparatory Academy, a new charter school in Madison, Wisconsin. But on January 13th, the school says a teacher shortage forced it to shut down classes for 9th and 10th graders. Teachers were just dropping like flies. I often hear from young people. The school's CEO, Colleen Kerr, tells CNN the school lost five core academic teachers since the beginning of the school year. And despite a national recruitment effort, he could not fill the positions. This A-wing, that's B-wing, and right there is U-wing. The school helped Lala and 61 other students scramble to find new schools mid-semester. After a week of missed classes, her mother enrolled her at a local public high school. CNN was there for the first day. We got a spot for you. Over there? Right over there. What's playing out in Madison, Wisconsin, is the worst-case scenario of a national teacher shortage gone unchecked. Department of Education data shows 47 states have reported teacher shortages this school year with a problem most acute in urban and rural areas. Meanwhile, some state legislatures are passing laws making it easier to become a public school teacher. Raise your hand. The National Council on Teacher Quality says from January 2021 to January 2023, 23 states have lowered teacher qualification requirements. From lowering or removing assessment tests that determine whether teachers grasp the subject they will teach to creating emergency teacher certificates to expedite candidates without a teaching degree in classrooms. Arizona, Florida and Oklahoma have created new pathways for people without a bachelor's degree to teach in classrooms. When states respond to shortages by reducing standards rather than by increasing salaries and improving working conditions, what they're doing is creating a vicious cycle. So they get people in who are underprepared. Those people leave at two to three times the rate of those who've come in with preparation. Back in Madison, Wisconsin, Superintendent Carlton Jenkins School District will absorb most students transferring from one city charter school, despite his district dealing with its own teacher shortage. I know our staff is like amazing. They do magical type work. It's still a challenge and eventually it brings stress on the staff. And the incoming students may already be behind. When I didn't have enough teachers in my classes, it was very hard because we didn't really learn anything. And they had so many great opportunities and to hear that that was no longer being afforded to her, it broke my heart and uh, brought me to tears. And that student that you saw in the piece there, she lost her math, chemistry, and history teachers all within the first few months of this school year. Now, these teachers are leaving for a variety of reasons, from teacher pay uh, to the pressure in classrooms because of the post-pandemic learning loss to the culture wars that we're seeing play out in classrooms. Poppy and Caitlin? So glad you did that reporting, Renee. Thank you. All right, it is American Heart Month. If you can't tell from mine and Poppy's outfits, 28 days dedicated to spreading awareness about cardiovascular disease is actually the leading cause of death in the United States for both men and women. Today specifically is National Wear Red Day, a day that focuses on women's heart health. According to the American Heart Association, heart disease kills more women than all forms of cancer combined. There is good news, though, because many cases can be prevented. So here to tell us about that is CNN's medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula, and also with us is journalist and TV personality Star Jones, who is a national volunteer for the American Heart Association and had open heart surgery to fix an aortic valve malfunction in 2010. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that experience because I know it's so personal for you. But, Doctor, first, can you just tell us you know, what are what are the numbers, what is the data here of just how concerning this actually should be for women and men who are watching? 
You said it in the intro. We say it every year. It is the leading cause of death for women in this country. Kills more women than all forms of cancer. One woman every minute. And every year we come on TV and we talk about the statistics. But I think what has to start happening is this has to become personal for women. They have to understand that this is their sister, their mother, their best friend, their co-worker. We have to realize that there is no face of what cardiovascular disease looks like. It can look like you or you or me. I had a woman in my office yesterday who was shocked at 50 years old. She was the picture of health. She runs, she eats well. She was shocked to find out that she had heart disease. And we had a conversation about how, you know what, this is a life-changing diagnosis, but now we can get you on the road to prevention and treatment. 80% of cardiovascular disease is preventable. Wow. 80%. Wow. So let's talk about simple lifestyle changes can make a difference in your life. And when it became personal for you in 2010. I had some really weird symptoms. You all know from watching me on television that I used to be severely obese and then I lost weight. So I thought to myself, amazing, better now, feel a little bit better than I've felt before, you know, but. I knew something was weird because I couldn't attribute the fact that I would get lightheaded if I went Mm. went from seated to standing, or I had intense heart palpitations that felt like someone was punching me in my chest, extremely fatigued, like I couldn't get out of bed. I knew something was wrong and it didn't have to do with weight. So I went to see my cardiologist and after a battery of tests over a 48 hour period, they found that I actually had a malfunctioning aortic valve. They told me that I had a choice. I can try to get it repaired now or six months from now, I would need a replacement. And if I didn't do something quickly within two years, I'd need a heart transplant. And I said, whoa, can you imagine being told that at 47 years old? And you, you never, never thought- had a heart attack. No, I never had a heart incident. So I, for all practical purposes, had elective open heart surgery wow. to stave off a major attack. And 12 years later, I sit here the picture of heart health because I paid attention to my body. I need other women to do the same thing. I am not here because the Heart Association said, please come. I'm here because it saved my life. It's imperative. Don't smoke. Know your freaking numbers. Know your blood pressure. Know your BMI. Know your body mass index and your, and your blood sugars and your blood pressure. And then Eat less and move more. I had to learn that the hard way, and we want to impart that to everybody out there. Wow. And you made a call. Yeah, I did. Right after you had surgery. Who was that call to? Um, I called the American Heart Association, and I said, there's a new face of heart disease. I said, it's not an old white guy's disease, because that's what we all saw. We saw Larry King, the brilliant. We saw David Letterman. We saw Bill Clinton. But we didn't see, you know, the black girl in red boots thinking that this was a heart disease issue. And I said, well, we're going to start making it relevant to everyone so that you can see yourself. And you can't change if you can't see yourself in it. And it really impacts on African-American women tremendously, and all women. And I don't want you to put your own health on the back burner anymore. If mama ain't healthy, ain't nobody healthy. That's so <laughs> Okay, mama? True. You yeah. see what I'm saying? I completely do. They tell you to put your mask on first for a reason yeah. on the airplane, yeah. and that's what we're saying to you now. My dear friend Susan Lucci says that all the time. Put yourself that's as first. a priority. Thank you for that. And doctor, what are the warning signs that women can be thinking about because Star was 47. Right. 
What do they need to look out for? Yeah, so this is really about understanding your risk factors, your numbers, recognizing symptoms, and then prioritizing yourself so that when you do recognize symptoms, you actually go and see a doctor. So warning signs for women can look like chest pressure, pain, discomfort, can look like jaw pain, arm pain, back pain, shortness of breath, decreased exercise tolerance, fatigue, palpitations, lightheadedness, or passing out, or even breaking out into a cold sweat or nausea. So there's a whole host of symptoms. And unfortunately, a lot of times we hear, oh, I just thought it was anxiety or my acid reflux. And I always say, we want to make sure it's not your heart first and foremost. Then we can look at everything else. But it's important to recognize those warning signs. And again, if you feel it, seek care. Don't put it off. Don't put yourself on the bottom of your priority list Put your health on the top. Um, it's so, so important. Women tend to do that all the time. Work comes mm-hmm. first, kids comes first, and not their health. Yeah. Um, but you can't really do that when it comes to cardiovascular disease. And no learn some hands-on CPR. You could save a life. We did a whole segment <laughs> on that. It was the best thing with yes. Dr. Narula. I actually just did CPR training last week. And, and I thought I knew it because I've done it before, mm-hmm. but it's always good to also get a refresher. Yeah. Absolutely. We, you can go to heart.org, see a 90-second video, 90 seconds, and you can change a life, okay? Yeah, that's right. Star, thank you so much for joining us with that incredibly personal story. And Dr. Tara, happy birthday to oh, you. Happy birthday. birthday. Don't think we you can come out. Here a day. Thank you. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Ahead, we have more on what we've been talking about all morning, that story that has captivated the White House, certainly, the suspected Chinese spy balloon that is currently floating over Montana, what we are hearing from defense officials and the Chinese government. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper is going to join us live next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. If you've ever wondered whether aliens exist, our very own Chris Wallace is trying to get down to the bottom of it. A recent report says US gov- the U.S. government has received over 350 reports of UFOs since March of 2021, and half of them remain unexplained. So Wallace asked astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson what he thinks about the possibility of life in outer space. Do you believe that there is life out there somewhere? I would say that if there weren't life, it would be astonishing. If there were, if, given how common our ingredients are and how quickly life took place here and how many planets we know are orbiting host stars. And it, it would be astonishing if that were the case. And what about aliens and what about UFOs? Well, to me, any life is alien. You mean aliens like with antennas and ray guns? Something more than a a cell. Okay. (laughs) Something (laughs) that could land here in a spaceship? Um, It could be out there. There's no evidence that would convince an authentic skeptic that we've been visited. Uh, And I can tell you this. These fuzzy, monochromatic tic-tacs that show up on the Navy-restricted airspace in our own atmosphere. By the way, you've seen the high resolution images from a telescope we parked a million miles from Earth called the James Webb Space Telescope, looking at the edge of the universe. And the best you have of visiting aliens in our own atmosphere is a fuzzy Tic Tac. You got to do better than that if you're going to convince an astrophysicist. Mm, You're going to want to see the whole interview. Who is talking to Chris Wallace here Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Good morning. It is being called epic, a once in a generation Arctic blast impacting millions. We're going to take you to the coldest places live. 
As an American general warns of a potential war with China and the United States builds up its presence in the region right now, a Chinese spy balloon is flying over the United States. What the Pentagon is saying this morning. The Russians continuing to fire with direct fire from tanks across the river, which is just a few hundred meters in that direction. There were just two massive missile strikes right in our vicinity. You can see it's just a couple of yards away from where we are. We're not exactly sure what kind of missiles it was, but this is a residential area. We're right in the middle of town. A close call with CNN reporters on the front lines in Ukraine as Vladimir Putin is evoking World War II to promise victory ahead of the invasion's one-year anniversary. Just a short time from now, the highly anticipated January jobs report comes out as the U.S. economy comes to a crossroad. We'll break it all down. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology. Time has expired. My life was threatened. Thank you. Tension on the House floor yesterday after House Republicans voted to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar off a key committee. One of those Republicans is going to join us live to respond. CNN This Morning starts right now. We're so glad to have you with us right now as we speak. A Chinese spy balloon is hovering over the United States. It was spotted high above Montana, where the U.S. military has a nuclear missile silo. The Pentagon is tracking the spy balloon closely and says it does not pose a military or physical threat. We're told the balloon is the size of three buses. A senior defense official says President Biden has been advised to not shoot it down because the falling debris could hurt people on the ground. The balloon's discovery is rattling Capitol Hill. We're now learning that staff members for the Gang of Eight have received a briefing. Joining us now on all of this is our chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo. Jim, good morning. Wow. Listen, a slow-moving Chinese mm-hmm. surveillance balloon floating over the continental the U.S. is understandably disturbing. My understanding is that as of last night, it hadn't left U.S. airspace. So here's what we know so far. First of all, this is an image captured from the ground. It was visible with the naked eye, flying at about 65,000 feet, about twice as high as commercial aircraft, but much lower than surveillance satellites. Uh, as you were saying going in, the size of three buses. Uh, Two flights were diverted for safety. Uh, Military leaders considered, but ultimately decided against uh, with the president's decision uh, to shoot it down. But the idea that that was under consideration shows just how seriously uh, U.S. officials and the president were taking uh, the idea of a Chinese spy balloon floating over the U.S. You mentioned what it was flying over. Right. Montana. Momstrom Air Base, uh, that has ICBMs there. So something that China would naturally be interested in taking a closer look at. It's happened before, Jim? It has uh, has happened before over U.S. territory before. But here's something I do want to note in terms of surveillance capabilities. This was not a big jump in what China is able to see. Why is that? Because China is flying spy satellites over the U.S. every 90 minutes as they orbit the Earth. And those satellites have at least equal surveillance capabilities. They're they're highly advanced. So in terms of what China could gather from this balloon, not an enormous step forward. And and by the way, we should note this, and this is something to be concerned about, is that China is one of the most active in terms of launching new satellites. Uh, Just look at the growth, going back to just six single digits of the 2000s. Now they're up close to 100 per year. The only other country competing with that, frankly, is the U.S. Uh, And as you add it all up, in terms of satellites, China 
second to the U.S. in terms mm -hmm. of what they have floating uh, above there right now. Again, all looking down at the U.S., gathering intelligence all the time. I, I spoke to a number of U.S. officials last night. So this is not a big gain in terms of surveillance, right. but it is in terms of audacity to fly sure. a slow-moving uh, surveillance balloon over the continent, not continental U.S., and know that the U.S., the president, you and I could see it as it's happening. Yeah, and just before... Uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, exactly. goes to meet with high-ranking Chinese officials. Certainly going to change the discussion there. Jim? Absolutely. And by the way, as you know, yeah. Poppy, those decisions are not made by accident. Uh, you, you could right. consider that perhaps a message uh, to the oh. U.S. Secretary of State as he prepares to go to Beijing. All right, Jim, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Joining us now for more perspective on this is the former Defense Secretary under former President Trump, Mark Esper. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning, Mark. I guess the number one question I have is you know, when the White House makes the decision not to shoot it down, do you agree with that decision? What kind of options do they have here? Well, uh, first of all, I I'm surprised by this. I think it is a brazen act by the Chinese to do this. Um, we, we were just talking about whether or not it has more or less intelligence value than what they currently have. I, I don't think we know. And so my interest would be not necessarily shooting it down, but bringing bringing it down so that we can capture the the equipment and understand exactly what they do what they're doing. Are they taking pictures? Are they intercepting signals? What are they doing? And what is the level of uh, technical capability? It will tell us a lot about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to learn, and what their capability is of doing that. Now, failing that, I would definitely shoot it down, uh, provided that there's no risk to people on the ground. Yeah. So you are surprised that this is just hovering over the continental U.S.? Oh, absolutely. Not just the continental United States, but over our, you know, our missile fields and our strategic bomber bases. And so that's a great concern to me that they are collecting intelligence. And look, they, they obviously are looking for something. They need information that I would assume they can't get through satellites. And so that's why I would be very interested in getting hold of this, uh, whatever the payload is, and understanding exactly what they're looking for and why. And then, of course, it gives us a good sense of their level of technological capability. The Chinese have been spying on us for years, for decades. We know the FBI tells us that, what, every 12 hours they open up an espionage case. To me, this is a brazen act. And so at the political level, we have to push back. We have to defend American sovereignty. And uh, we have to make clear to the Chinese that we're not going to tolerate this. Is that your sense of why it would be flying over Montana because of that air base that maintains and operates those intercontinental ballistic missiles? Well, that would be my first guess. But until we know what type of instrumentation they have in the payload, we wouldn't know for sure. There are other facilities, things we do uh, in that part of the country. So that's why I would want to get a hold of that technology and find out. But again, that's at the intelligence level. At the political level, we have to send a very strong message back that we won't tolerate this behavior. And now, look, uh, maybe there's a counterintelligence value that uh, we see by letting it pass overhead. Maybe there's more. There's always more to this than you know that meets the eye. And I wouldn't be privy to that now. So I, I give the Pentagon some room here. But uh, those are the big questions that I think people should ask, uh, members of Congress should be asking uh, as they dig into this further. What kind of options does the U.S. have for responding, for sending the message that you think that they should send? Well, again, first, either capturing the equipment or shooting it down would be a, a strong message. Uh, there's obviously you, you would demarch the country, but we should, again, increase our activities as well. You know, recall when Speaker Pelosi uh, visited Taiwan last summer, the Chinese ramped up their, their crossings of the ta Taiwan centerline with both ships and aircraft. And I never got the sense that we responded forcefully back. You've got to match the Chinese head to head. We can't be self-deterred and we can't let the Chinese Communist Party push us around. 
they will only respond to, you know, resolve, to commitment. And we need to show that when we're facing off against Beijing. Mark, as we were reporting on this yesterday, we heard from the Pentagon. They say this has actually happened before, during the last administration, when you were defense secretary during that time period. Were you aware of this? How was it resolved? What can you tell us about that? I read that. I was surprised. I don't ever recall somebody coming into my office or reading anything that the Chinese had a surveillance balloon above the United States. And you would obviously know that if that had happened when you were defense secretary. Uh, I would remember that for sure. I mean, my focus was on implementing the national defense strategy to take on the Chinese as the greatest strategic threat facing our country. So I was keen on everything Chinese. We set up a, a red cell within the Pentagon to deal with it. We reoriented, reoriented the military's doctrine and how we train and fight all those things focused on the Chinese. So I would be very curious as to why Chinese surveillance balloons were overflying the United States. So that would have caught my attention for sure. I, I don't recall it ever happening. If you were at the Pentagon and this did happen and the Secretary of State was about to go on a trip to China, what would your advice to the Secretary of State be? Would you say to cancel the trip? Would you say to make sure this is the first thing they bring up? What would your advice be? Well, I suspect Secretary Pompeo shared my views as well with regard to China. And uh, I don't know how we would have reacted. I mean, sometimes you call off trips like this or sometimes you go you go prepared to give a very, very strong statement of, uh, of Chinese, China violating our sovereignty. And so there are different ways to approach this, and it just depends on the broader dynamics. And look, I, on the other hand, I think the Pentagon made a good move with regard to expanding our access to Philippine bases. This was something that uh, we were working on during my tenure at the Pentagon as well, is how do you expand U.S. access to bases in the Philippines? And it's, it's, it's very good that we've done that because it allows us to address, to address military Chinese military capabilities in case war breaks out um, do you think, in the Indo-Pacific. Do you think Blinken should cancel his trip? That's an option that should be considered, but I think we need to know more and um, uh, we, we need to assess what's happening in the broader context. Curiously, the Chinese are not outright denying it as they would typically do. They're saying, well, we would never violate someone's sovereignty. So the way they're playing this is quite curious to me as well. What does it say to you about the state of U.S.? China relations right now, that they would take an act that you described as brazen as this? Well, it's not well. The, the, the relations are not good. They have not been good for, for some time, certainly in the months leading up to Xi Jinping's uh, uh, seizure of a, uh, of a third term as chairman of the party uh, last October. But look, they're not getting better. He's, he, he's tried to change his tack a little bit, realizing that uh, Chinese foreign policy isn't playing well in the international community, but I, I don't think we should be. Uh, um, uh, I, I don't think we should be fooled by what they're doing. They have an aggressive plan to build a modern military over the next decade, and they have they've stated that their aim by 2049 is to dominate the Indo-Pacific, if not the global order, and change the rules and norms. And so that is their their grand strategy, and we need to be cognizant of that and do everything we can to push back on this to try and change their behavior. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, thank you so much. Really important perspective on this. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It, it really was fascinating perspective. Well, and to say that he has no idea what the Pentagon is talking about, that it happened when... On his watch. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, now turning to the Arctic, dangerous cold blast coming from the Northeast. This. It is going to be a brutal weekend. Forecasters say the extreme cold could be epic. It could be once in a generation, with wind chills dropping to 50 below zero in some parts of New England and more than 15 million Americans under alerts. And as the Northwest is hunkering down for what could be the coldest temperatures in decades, 
How can you keep yourself and your home safe? Our next guest know a thing or two about winterizing homes for brutal New England conditions. They transform old cabins into scenic retreats on the hit Discovery show, Discovery Plus show, Main Cabin Masters. So we have a lovely skating rink here today at the Y Camp. We thought we had winter beat, but unfortunately we lost. Uh, snow came in over the weekend, eight inches to a foot of snow. It was wet, it was heavy, and it's frozen now. Joining us now are the hosts of Maine Cabin Masters, Chase Morrill and Ryan Eldridge. They live in Augusta, Maine, where the wind chill could reach as low as... And they're outside! Mine, of course they are. <laughs> I love this so much. Good morning. Good morning. How you feeling? Cold. <laughs> but great. Okay, what do people need to do, homeowners, the biggest thing they need to do to protect their homes? Because we have a cabin in northern Minnesota, like way up north where it gets this cold, and we're always worried about the pipes bursting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when it's this cold and you have the wind chill, you know, you're going to have drafts blowing through your house no matter what. And the biggest concern, I think, is frozen pipes. You know, you got to make sure... Cut down your drafts and find ways to uh, keep those pipes from freezing. You know, a couple of tricks we do, you know, find your drafts at your doors and windows, roll up some towels, put them under there, and really minimize your time going in and out. Hunker down. Okay, if there are <laughs> two things, if there are, yeah, you guys need to hunker down. Take your own <laughs> advice. Come on. Um, no, I love this. I love watching you outside. I feel like I'm watching Senator Klobuchar when she announced her presidential yes, in run the, in, in the, the blizzard. Snow. Okay, but if, if you're watching this and you're worried and you have two things non-negotiable you must do, what are they? Make sure you have enough fuel. You know, make sure your oil tank is full. You've got propane if you have burned propane. You know, your wood box is stocked just so that you know, you can make sure you keep that constant heat going. And also make sure all your venting is properly cleared. You know, most of these exterior heating systems vent out. I mean, these heating systems vent outside and under eaves. So snow's coming off. If, you get, if you're in an area with a lot of snow, you've got to constantly make sure that that's venting cr- properly. And inside as well. Make sure your uh, heating vents are, there's nothing obstructing the way. If you've got radiant baseboard heat along the walls, there's nothing in front of it mm-hmm. that you know allows that air to flow through it and actually make the heat move around the your building. I think the first instinct is make a roaring fire inside if you've got a fireplace, but you guys say not necessarily the best idea. Yeah, I think you know when temperatures are this cold, if you've got a hot water baseboard system or a furnace, you know you want to make sure that that system is getting the call to produce heat. So that it's not, you know, it's not tricking your system and not keeping your pipes or anything in the basement warm. You know, if you have a, a fire roaring upstairs, it's going to show on your thermostat that it's 90 degrees, but your fur- your furnace isn't going to know that, you know, you've got... Your basement's 20 yeah. degrees. <laughs> I think that's a good point Chase makes is be aware. And even if one part of your house is warm, take the time this weekend to go check everywhere. Go down yeah. in the basement. Look in the back and just make make sure, you know, everything feels right and there's nothing out of the ordinary. Don't take anything for granted. Guys, please go get warm. <laughs> I hope we sent you, like, hot chocolate or, you know, mold, mold wine or hey, something. We, we, were, we were begging for this. We were begging for okay. the snow and cold weather, and we got it. All right, yeah. you certainly did. Chase, Ryan, thank you guys both so much. Thank, thank you. Have you. a great day. <laughs> 
All right, you can watch Chase and Ryan, hopefully not outside freezing, on their show Main Cabin Masters on Discovery Plus and HBO Max. All right, also in Ukraine, CNN crews were on the front lines, narrowly avoiding Russian strikes in the east, a close call, just as the CIA director says that Vladimir Putin is not serious about negotiating in the war he believes is at a crucial point. I think the next six months, it seems to me, and it's our assessment at CIA, are going to be critical. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. As Putin's war in Ukraine is intensifying, the CIA director, William Burns, says the next few months are going to be crucial for the outcome. I think the next six months, it seems to me, and it's our assessment at CIA, are going to be critical. Putin, I think, is betting right now that he can make time work for him. He's betting that he can grind down Ukrainians, that political fatigue is going to set in. We do not assess that Putin is serious about negotiations. The key is going to be on the battlefield in the next six months, it seems to us, Um, puncturing Putin's hubris. Uh, making clear that he's not only not going to be able to advance further in Ukraine, but as every month goes by, he runs a greater and greater risk of losing the territory that is illegally seized from Ukraine so far. I want to bring in now the former European Affairs Director at the National Security Council, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who is also the author of Here, Right Matters, an American Story. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Good to talk to you. I wonder, first off, what you made of the assessment from the CIA director. I think that uh, that the uh, ambassador's and uh, director's assessment is very, very good. My question is, what are we doing to make this very critical next six months Uh, increasingly difficult for uh, Vladimir Putin. The fact is that uh, this next six months, the Russians are going to potentially start another offensive, uh, take more territory. The Ukrainians are going to have to blunt that attack and then move on the offensive and start to liberate territory. These uh, kind of slow flows of tanks, the fact that we're providing our Abrams and they're not going to get there for six months is not sufficient. Signaling those tanks coming just to release the German leopard tanks and allow other countries to provide tanks is, is not, that's exactly what happened in 2008. We signaled that we wanted Ukraine to join NATO, and uh, all that did was precipitate Russia's uh, increased aggression. We can't just l- rely on signaling. We actually have to take uh, firm action, which is provide Ukraine the equipment it needs. Uh, that includes planes, that includes drones, that includes uh, accelerating the pace of the delivery of these tanks, and that can be done. It's just a matter of will. Yeah, well, and you said you believe the flow uh, of this equipment and these weapons to Ukraine is kind of resulting in this incremental escalation. You write in Foreign Affairs that Western reluctance to fully support Ukraine and defeat Russia undercuts Ukraine's ability to conduct such an offensive and will likely cause the war to stretch on deep into 2023. Basically, it seems like you're saying that if they had provided more sooner, this could end sooner. That's, that's very true, but I'm also concerned about the future. It's not just the fact that we allowed this war to stretch out many, many months more than it needs to be. It's that the next six, nine months are going to be particularly dangerous. What we're going to probably face is a increasingly erratic Vladimir Putin, where he believes that his crown jewel, the Crimean Peninsula, potentially is going to be under threat and what actions he takes then. I don't. I feel very confident in saying that he's not going to escalate to, uh, to any nuclear options because that would be the end of his regime. 
but that's the point that he starts to get, uh, starts to really seriously consider that option, not just to threaten it, not just to uh, use that as a means to get the West to back down, but he starts to consider the option seriously. And if that's the biggest thing we want to avoid, this potential existential crisis, we need to make sure we don't get go down this road of uh, incremental escalation. We give the Ukrainians what they need. We give them the means to threaten the peninsula and then force Putin to negotiate in earnest. Like the uh, director of Central Intelligence said, he's not serious about it yet. He will get serious. He will absolutely get serious when uh, Crimea is under threat and the Ukrainians start to liberate more territory. The sooner we get there, the less chance of uh, incremental escalation and less risk to uh, spill over into a confrontation with NATO. Do you think the U.S. should send the fighter jets? I think that we should we should be absolutely training the Ukrainians on fighter jets. If we keep saying that it takes months and months to prepare the Ukrainians for these advanced capabilities, which it does, then we should be training them now on the prospect that they might need them six months from now. We should have been doing the tank training a long time ago. What other what what also disturbs me is that these systems come in without logistical support. All the support that the Ukrainians get, uh, they get it outside of uh, Poland. Everything else is done through what what we call telemedicine where you call up and uh, show the Ukrainians what's broken on a, on a screen, and then they have to say, okay, well, um, well, we need these parts, and, and it takes a long time to get systems fixed. Supporting a war from 800 kilometers away is unsustainable. We need to provide logistics. Um, we need to make sure parts are flowing in in order to keep these items in service. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alex Finman, great perspective on this. Thank you so much. Well, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar vowing to continue working for the American people just before House Republicans kicked her off the Foreign Affairs Committee. My voice will get louder and stronger and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. We will be joined by one of the Republican members of the House who did vote against her sitting on that committee next. American Pain, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome back. Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is officially off the House Foreign Affairs Committee. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy following through on his pledge to remove her for anti-Semitic comments that she has apologized for. Democrats are accusing Republicans of hypocrisy and attacking women of color and of seeking political revenge. Remember, Democrats removed Republican representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their two committees a few years ago. Greene has a history of anti-Semitic comments. Gosar tweeted an anime-style video of himself attacking Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and President Biden. In 2021, 11 House Republicans joined Democrats in voting to strip Greene of her committee assignments, and one of those Republicans was New York Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis. I hold the same standard for this side of the aisle that I do the other, because when another colleague on my side said something about 9-11, I also voted to have her removed from the education committee because I thought that was inappropriate. This is about consistency and accountability, because we should not have an individual with those views on the committee that is tasked with representing our country and our Congress to foreign nations. Congresswoman Maliotakis joins me now. She sits on the House Ways and Means Committee. She did serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee with Congresswoman Omar uh, in the last Congress. Thank you for your time. Good morning. You have said, quote, America is safer with Representative Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee. Can you help our viewers understand why you think that is? 
Well, I thought she held very uh, dangerous views, which she shared on this committee. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I sat on this committee when uh, Ilan Omar compared Israel and the United States to Hamas and the Taliban, somebody who can't differentiate between terrorist organizations and the United States of America and our great ally Israel is a problem on that committee. Uh, I also sat on this committee when she was saying that Venezuela and the turmoil in Venezuela was because of the United States of America instead of rightfully putting the blame on the socialism and communism of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro. Another very dangerous viewpoint that, you know, quite frankly, when you're on this committee, our, we're representing our country and our Congress to other foreign governments. And to have someone on this committee that says those things, plus the fact that she diminished 9-11, the worst terrorist attack on our soil as some people who, who did something, that to me as a New Yorker who represents a district who lost uh, most lives on 9-11 is very disheartening and it makes me angry. And so I believe that she can be on any other committee, right? But she can't be on the Foreign Affairs Committee so, representing our nation to other countries. Congresswoman, to the first point you made and your objections of her, she did respond since saying that to say, quote, I was in no way equating terrorist organizations with democratic countries of dem with democratic countries with well-established judicial systems. To the point about anti-Semitism, she tweeted apologizing in 2019 for some of her statements, saying, quote, anti-Semitism is real. I unequivocally apologize. At that moment, she also voted for a House resolution condemning anti-Semitism. And just yesterday, before this vote, she co-sponsored another resolution condemning anti-Semitism and calling Israel an ally of the United States. Would any apology be enough for you to believe she could serve on this committee? I mean, the problem is how many times are we going to go through this, right? She says these things, and then maybe later on she goes and apologizes when there's such outrage, including from her own party. Remember, she apologized after even Nancy Pelosi condemned what she had said. So the problem with her is that it just doesn't end. She apologizes, and she continues to spew this type of rhetoric. And, you know, my colleagues focused on the anti-Semitism, and in my speech I focused on the mm -hmm. anti-American comments, because the point is you're representing our country, our Congress, to four government and to have this anti-American viewpoint that you're going to blame our country for what Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro did to their own people and destroying their country and driving those people out into, into poverty because of communist and socialist policies, I think that's a, a major problem. And as you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, I've been consistent. You know, I've held that same standard with my own side of the aisle. And well, so I think this is about being consistent and, and mm -hmm. holding those accountable. So let's talk about consistency and holding those accountable. You voted against the censure of Congressman Paul Gosar, despite him posting on social media that anime video depicting the killing of your fellow Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and swinging swords at President Biden. He did not apologize for that. In fact, he said this. Let's play it. I did not apologize. I just said this, this, this video had nothing to do with harming anybody. So are you then, for consistency's sake, comfortable with Congressman Gosar sitting on the House Oversight Committee? 
Look, I actually condemned the video, but the reason I didn't take that vote was because we were seeing how it's all one-sided, right? Uh, at that time, after uh, voting for the Marjorie Taylor Greene vote, I had said we now need to remove Eric Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee. We need to remove Ilan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Ilan uh, Omar, for the reasons I've mentioned, but Eric Swalwell, I mean, this is someone who had a relationship with a Chinese spy, sits on the Intelligence Committee, could not get a clearance in the private sector, and yet he's on a committee where we are sharing, they're, they're given secrets that I don't, I don't know because I don't have privy to that information. The, the, the most important secrets pertaining to our nation's security and safety on that committee, he should have been removed so, then. And the fact that the Democrats had this, this it's, it's, it's a double standard that they have, not that we have. Congressman, and by the way, we've I, I said the, that they can sit on other committees. It's just those specific okay. committees. I, I when wanna, they removed our members, they removed them from all committees. Okay. I'd like to get back to the, the question I asked you just because you brought up Congressman Swalwell, the Washington Post, as you know, has given four Pinocchios in their fact check of that claim. And a San Francisco Chronicle article cites an unnamed FBI source that says Swalwell was, quote, completely cooperative and under no suspicion of wrongdoing. The question I asked you about Congressman Gosar is, given that video, are you comfortable with him sitting on the House Oversight Committee? Look, he's he's on that committee oversight, um, and 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 I don't think that it's about Gosar or Swalwell. What I'm trying to say is that but there is no consistency. When the Democrats do it, when the Democrats do it, it's okay. But when the Republicans, by the way, we've said that they can sit on a committee. It's just those particular uh, committees that were problematic because okay. of the information that is shared in the committee and the nature of of interacting with foreign entities. I, I want to. And by the way, uh, Speaker McCarthy. Yeah, okay, go ahead. No, please finish. No, I was just going to simply say that, you know, Speaker McCarthy and Speaker Pelosi were briefed specifically about uh, Mr. Swalwell by the FBI, and they had shared concerns about him. So it's probably information that none of us have because it pertains to the Intel Committee. So then let's stick with the information that we do have. Before we move on to the issue of China, where I want to end this interview, I would note that, you know, Congresswoman Omar was the only Muslim and the only refugee on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, who, you know, is a Jewish American, tweeted this yesterday. The most dangerous act by elected officials in a democracy is to silence voices of dissent, even those with which we fundamentally agree. Do you agree a diverse set of views is important on that committee? No, absolutely. Look, we should have a diverse set of views. Uh, and as a daughter of a refugee, I actually understand the need to have individuals who understand the turmoil uh, that our uh, nations around the globe face because we're dealing with a, a, very, a lot of very sensitive issue. Again, my problem is when someone uh, speaks uh, anti-American rhetoric on the committee, uh, when they do equate Hamas with Israel and the Taliban with the United States, which she did do, uh, and when you try to blame our country for socialist, uh, the actions of socialist and communist dictators around the globe, that is when it becomes a problem. I think okay. it's very easy to understand, uh, and I think that most Americans would agree with our decision to remove her from this committee, considering her uh, views. Finally, I want to end on this because you did just sit on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and we have all this news this morning about that Chinese spy balloon flying over the continental United States. Your fellow Republican uh, Senator Roger Wicker, who of course is a ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, said he's concerned that the DOD failed to act with urgency and that Congress and the American people deserve more of an explanation. How, what is your level of concern mm -hmm. over this? 
I think it's very concerning. I mean, if you have uh, surveillance of particularly our military uh, assets uh, by a country that is the greatest threat right now to uh, the United States, and along with Russia, who has, uh, you know, surveillance 90 miles from our shores uh, in Cuba, uh, this is a concern. And I think this is why we have established in a bipartisan basis the uh, Select Committee on uh, China to try to drill down on these issues to make us better prepared for the future. It's about them knowing about our military uh, capabilities. It is about them purchasing farmland here in the United States near military installations, uh, about stealing intellectual property, uh, and about even in New York having uh, a, a, a CCP uh, police uh, facility right here in the city of New York to spy on you know, Chinese Americans, many of those I represent. And so uh, it is very concerning, and that is why we created this in a bipartisan fashion. I'm glad that you know we understand that this threat is uh, real and that it is growing and that we need to work together uh, in Congress to address it. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, thank you for your time. It's great to be with you. Thank you. This morning, the Labor Department just released the January jobs report. You are going to want to see these numbers. They will make your jaw drop. That's next. All right, breaking news just into CNN, the January jobs report. The U.S. economy added 517,000 jobs in January. That is so two and a half times more what the street was expecting. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here. Catherine Rampell, an economics commentator and Washington Post columnist. What I'm not going to tell people what you said when the number came out. <laughs> it was but. a bad word. I said a bad <laughs> word, which is rare for me, because I was so surprised. 517,000 jobs added. That is, you're right, more than double what we had thought. And you look in these numbers, there are revisions all along the way, you can see that December was revised higher. You can see that just about every month was revised higher. So where they got it a little bit off, it was because they undercounted. This is a very, very strong job market. And the unemployment rate, 3.4 percent, ticked down just a tiny bit. Uh, the government pointing out that since the beginning of 2022, there's been no real meaningful change in what is nearly a 50-year low for the unemployment rate. And the government also points out that the, the hiring was always was widespread, led by leisure and hospitality, which, as you know, is a part of the economy that has been booming as people have, like, shook off three years of kind of restraint and now want to spend on experience is they want to go out. So this, this is a really strong number. This is not what you would expect after eight interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. You know, the Fed chief, Jerome Powell and company, would like to see this market cooling off. It doesn't show signs of cooling off here. Wage growth, 4.4%. That's a little bit lighter than December, but it's still showing wage gains for, uh, for workers. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, Christine said a four-letter word. What was your reaction? It's, it's less rare for me to say a four-letter <laughs> word, so that won't tell you anything one way or the other, but I did. Um, look, it's really surprising. You know, for months I have been asking, where are the workers? It's, you know, all these employers have been talking about worker shortages, and I think a lot of people were expecting um, that that problem would have been somewhat resolved. There have been tons of stories about how the axe has been swinging in Silicon Valley and in media, you know, lots of layoffs there, which we don't really see in this report, no. a tiny decrease in information um, services. But 
in general, it's like, where are the layoffs? I mean, that's a, that's a good question to ask, yeah. right? That there was this fear that the economy, well, the, the Fed wants the economy to cool. The fear was that the economy would plummet, right? That we would go off of a cliff and that hasn't happened. Instead, you see uh, hiring increasing. You see unemployment decreasing. You see wage growth cooling a little bit, but still pretty strong. Yeah. So there's this puzzle again of like, how is it that the Fed has been uh, administering this medicine, these rate hikes, as Christine mentioned, that a lot of people feared uh, would, you know, put the economy into a deep freeze. And instead, it seems to be heating up. You know, I think bosses say they're worried about a recession this year. They're planning for a recession this year, but they don't want to let go of their workers because they fear more not being able to find the people they need when the economy is really, really running again. So I think there's a fear in corporate suites about losing workers. That's why you're not seeing yeah, the layoffs. labor hoarding. Yeah, exactly. Why you're not seeing layoffs outside of tech and in some cases media. Do you think that this indicates that this soft landing is more real than we thought? I think this indicates you could have an economy that slows this year, maybe even slips into a recession without big job loss. And what is terrible about a recession? Factories close, Main Street pain because people lose their jobs and huge Is the job loss. Is the job loss. What if you are facing a situation that you have some sort of mild recession this year, but not massive job loss? That would almost probably feel better than the terrible inflation people endured for six or eight months. It also depends a little bit on what the Fed does, right? Yeah. If, if this report makes the Fed nervous, maybe all of these things we heard this week about how they're going to sort yeah. of, uh, you know, step temper. back on how ha, temper their rate hikes, maybe that will change. And I'm sure all of Wall Street is going to be watching very carefully for how Fed officials talk about the recent numbers. Are they going to say, now we need to act more aggressively? Or are they going to say, hey, maybe it's working? I I don't know. A recession is not inevitable. And honestly, a soft landing is possible. No one will know for sure until we live through it. (laughs) Wow. On that note, (laughs) thank you guys very much. Thank you both. All right, up next, we're going to talk to the director of the new scene in film, American Pain. It traces the rise and fall of two Florida twins, brothers, who trafficked more than $500 million in opioid pills in the U.S. I'd been on the job as a special agent for over 20 years. I've seen a lot of crazy. This was just bad crazy. Hard to believe, but more than a million people have died from drug overdoses during the opioid epidemic of the last 20 years. Nearly 100,000 of those deaths a year are from opioids. And now the new CNN film, American Pain, takes us inside the opioid crisis itself, revealing the rise and fall of the identical twin brothers who ran one of the largest opioid pill mill empires in the country. Here's a preview. The George brothers did not start the opioid crisis but they sure as hell poured gasoline on the fire. They became the largest street-level distribution group operating the entire United States. Nobody put more pills on the streets than they did. Nobody. They created a blueprint for how this is to be done, and they were operating in broad daylight. The scale of this enterprise, I mean, it was enormous. You had addicts streaming in from all over the country, thousands of miles, just to come to Florida to get drugs. When you see what's going on inside that clinic, your job just falls to the floor. You failed in the parking lot. Shoot up. I'd been on the job as a special agent for over 20 years. I've seen a lot of crazy. This was just bad 
crazy. Wow. Joining us now is Darren Foster, the director of the film that you saw there, American Pain. Darren, we're so glad you're joining us on this remarkable film because this is such an issue in the United States that does not get enough attention. And what I was so struck by was what you heard from people saying, you know, about one of these clinics, that they would go down there, they would buy them for $3 a pill from these clinics. They'd go back to Kentucky and sell them for 20 bucks and make all of this money. They said they would even sponsor people to go down there for their doctor's visits to bring pills back to other states. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, the story of American pain is basically the story of the greatest drug racket to hit South Florida since the cocaine cowboys of the 1980s. You talk about the profit margins. Yes, a pill that could be bought for $3 at a clinic in Florida could be resold for 10 times that much. Uh, and the profit margins were so big that people that were typically dealing in traditional street drugs like heroin and cocaine, made the switch back in the mid to late 2000s uh, to get in on the, on the pill racket because it was just much more profitable. You know, I think a lot of the attention, um, rightly so, in this crisis in America has been focused on the big pharmaceutical giants, namely uh, Purdue Pharma, right? Not as much on folks like this. And the fact that yep. you got such remarkable access to them, how did you do it? Well, I started reporting on the story in 2009. Uh, I went down to report on the pain clinics in Florida. Uh, and at the time, there was one clinic that had a reputation of being the biggest and the most prolific dispenser of these drugs. Uh, and it was called American Pain. So I went down there to film the clinic and I got my camera out. I took one shot and the next thing I knew, I was surrounded by some pretty big dudes. Mm. Uh, and they chased me down I-95, uh, me and my production wow. crew. Uh, and, you know, we got basically the police came and broke us up. Um, but as they drove away, I wrote down the license plate and then the license plate traced back to Chris George. That was the first time I heard the name. About nine months later, uh, Chris George and his identical twin brother, Jeff George, uh, would be the targets of the largest pres prescription drug trafficking case in U.S. history. Wow. And they both went to prison. One of them is out. One is still in. I think until 2030 is how long his sentence is. You know, what do people see when you talk to them in this film? You know, I want to tell the story of the George brothers because I thought it illustrated an important chapter in the history of the opioid crisis in America. Uh, the rise and fall of the George brothers is very colorful. There's a lot of colorful characters in this. But ultimately, it's a story about pharmaceutical, the, the, the corruption in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, these are the people that the pharmaceutical industry partnered with to pump out billions of pills uh, to people who didn't need them and basically spawned the opioid crisis. Um, you know, what differentiates the opioid crisis from other drug crises in American history is that it was made in America. Um, these pills did not come from foreign cartels in foreign lands. They came from American pharmaceutical manufacturers. Uh, so even today, when we're looking at, you know, people switching to heroin and fentanyl now, which is driving the overdose rates, um, you know, it was the prescription drugs who, that primed the pump for all this. Yeah. Darren Foster, wow. it, it's fascinating. And I'm so grateful that you spent so much time on this because it matters to so many people. So, so thank you for joining us this morning to preview it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And you can watch Darren's new film, CNN film, American Pain. It's going to be on this Sunday on CNN, 9 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We've had quite a busy few hours. Yes. And I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break.
That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.